This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Usually, when you Google things, it's not that bad, lah. The most stressful things, in fact, the top two most stressful things that you can experience in life is actually losing relationship. So number one is the death of a spouse. Your wife dies, your husband dies. The second one, the second most stressful thing that can happen to you is divorce. Right? So if they didn't leave you because they died, they left you because they divorced you. In fact, I was reading this book recently where it said that if you experience divorce, you statistically will live a shorter life than someone who has never been divorced, or even if you were single. And this person was saying that rather than going to the gym and working out for one hour, three times a week, it would actually be more beneficial for your health if you were to spend three one-hour blocks trying to work on your marriage. Now, if it is really sad and tragic to lose a loved one either through death or through divorce, then how much more so would it be to lose God, to be divorced from God, so to speak, or to somehow lose His love for you? Today we're looking at Psalm 63, and in many ways it deals with the problem of the loss of God. So as we come to Psalm 63, uh, which was read for us, it was very helpful, but if you look at the top of Psalm 63, there's a little subtitle. If you notice, it says, A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Can you, do you all see that? I don't know, is that in your handphones? I don't know whether it comes in your handphones. I can only see my Bible. But two times in David's life, David was in the desert, and both times he was being pursued, he was being chased by his enemies in order for them to murder and kill him. So the very first time was when Before he became the king, the previous king, King Saul, chased him out into the desert in order to murder and kill him. So here on the slide, is it up there, Golda? In 1 Samuel chapter 23, So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kiliah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds and the desert of the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. Okay, so that was the first instance when he was in the desert. The second instance, oh, next one. Oh, okay. So he was running around. See where Keilah is? It's a wilderness. So he was running around this region when he was on the run from King Saul. Next slide. The second time he was in the desert where he was running away from his own son. His own son Absalom had seized the throne and had tried to kill David in order to secure his own kingship. A bit of like Game of Thrones sort of thing, right? Okay, so next slide. This time David fleed through the desert in order to escape from his son, Absalom. So two times we read that David was facing dark times, rough times, bleak times, because someone was searching to kill him and he was fleeing in the desert. So when you read Psalm 63 here, it is a time of 
difficulty for David. And when you face difficult times, one of the temptations, the human temptations, is to give up on God. So I, I remember my son brought back this newspaper article from... Uh, uh, actually, he didn't bring back the article. Uh, he just brought the whole newspaper and dumped it on the dining table. So I happened to read it. And just so, God gave me this article, which I could share with you, right? And it said, I don't know what newspaper this is, one of the British newspapers. It says, belief in God slumps after a turbulent year. Now, actually, it doesn't make sense to me, right? Because, you know, if you have Brexit, that's your own fault, right? What you blame God for? But anyway, as we look at this article, I think there's a grain of truth. Because when we face turbulence in our life, when times are tough, there is a temptation to give up on God. So what did David do in Psalm 63 when he was out in the desert? When he was on the run from his enemies, he was hot, he was thirsty, he didn't know he was going to survive. Well, the first thing he said in verse 1 was, You, my God, or you, God, are my God. Actually, it doesn't sound so good. as It sounds better in the, in the early translation, which I printed out. Right? In, the new, in the older NIV version, it says, Oh God, you are my God. Okay, that sounds a lot better. Oh God, you are my God. So the first thing that David says when he faces difficulty is he speaks to himself. He talks to himself. Now, it doesn't mean that David is like one of those crazy people you see at the MRT, you know, they're mumbling to themselves. But I think as Christians, we need to speak to ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves statements and truths and facts and realities about God and our relationship with God. So the first thing that comes out of David's mouth is a statement, Oh God, you are my God. He doesn't say, God, I wish you were my God, or God, please be my God. He makes a statement that God is my God. Oh God, you are my God. When the voices are whispering in his head during difficult times, we need to learn from what David is doing and speak to ourselves and remind ourselves that God, you are my God. You are my God. That is the reality in spite of the, the difficult, dark situation we face. But it's not enough just to make those statements to ourselves. It's not just intellectual because David goes on in verse 1 and he says, earnestly, or some trace, uh, translations say, eagerly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you or in the new NIV, it just says, I thirst for you, right? It doesn't sound so good, but my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now here we see uh, the poetic power of Psalms. How many of you enjoy reading poetry? Oh, only German, okay. okay. But I, I would have expected that, right? Because... Because most people don't read poetry now, right? You, you, you look at YouTube videos or you look at social media and Facebook. But there is power in poetry. And that's the whole point of Psalms, as we've been saying. Because it doesn't just engage the mind, it engages the heart. And here three visual pictures are given to us of how David turns to God inwardly. He says, Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now you imagine the situation. You're in the desert. It's hot, it's dry, it's thirsty. It's a dry and weary land. What do you thirst for? Water, right? Water. Or maybe, uh, if you look up here, 
Okay, think of yourself in the desert. It's very dry. Okay, next slide. There's no water. So you, you thirst for, next slide, a big glass of Coca-Cola or maybe a 7-Up or just water itself. But David here contrasts the thirst that he feels for water and refreshment in the dry, parched desert with longing and thirst for God. I wonder whether you ever feel this way. Have you ever been really thirsty? Imagine and think about the last time you've been really thirsty. Maybe you're in NS, I don't know. Or maybe you're playing tennis one day. Or maybe, I don't know why you're really thirsty. But feel that thirst and transpose that thirst and say, do you ever thirst for God in the same way? Do you long for God in the same way? Do you, do you seek God the same way you'd seek for Coca-Cola or water? Because that's what David feels. He doesn't just say, you are my God. He says, I long and thirst and seek for you. Now, why does David feel this way? Why does he feel so hungry for God? Well, in verse 2, he says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life my lips will glorify you and I'll praise you as long as I live and your name I will lift up my hands. See, David longs for God and thirsts for God because he knows that God is real. He doesn't long and wish for something that is not real. He longs and wishes for the God who is real and his, is his God. He gives two reasons. He said because... I have seen you in the sanctuary. So at this point in time, David right, sees the evidence, the tangible evidence of God because he knows that God is in the temple, in the sanctuary with the ark. But not only that, because he's beheld God's power and his glory, because for Israel, and David is Israel's king, they have seen the power of God, the reality of God, because God has taken them out of Egypt brought them through the, the desert into the promised land and given them the promised land and David is the king over this land. So for David, God is as real as the table because God has revealed himself. So I remember there was a very famous Christian uh, teacher, right, Francis Schaeffer. He always refers to the God who is there. The God who is there because he reveals himself. So that's the God that we believe in. Now for David, he knew that God was real because he could look back to the temple, he could look at the land, he could look at the kingdom of Israel, he could remember the ten miracles that God had brought against Pharaoh to free them to go into the promised land. But for us as Christians, our, our basis for faith is not the temple, but in Jesus Christ. If David had reason to be strong in his faith, then we have an even stronger reason because we've seen God's Son, Jesus. His miracles, we've heard His words, we've seen His death and resurrection, we've beheld it. And that's why in verse 3, he says, because your love is better than life. Now look up here uh, on this slide. 
So, do you believe this mathematical equation to be true? Okay, so what do you think about this? Do you believe this to be true? Is this true for your life? Is God's love more important than life? Or what it says there in verse 2, is having God's love better than life itself? Or, is it the second one? Do you believe that your life is better than God's love? If you were to weigh it up on a scale, which would be more important to you? Well, David says, for him, God's covenant love is better than his own life itself. That's why he thirsts after God. You see, if you, if you think that God's love is, is not as important as your life, then you will never thirst and hunger and seek for God the way David does. Because for you, the things of this world, your Coca-Cola, your 7-Up, your water, will always be more refreshing than God and His love. But for David, he is able to say that God's love is better than life. And by, by making that equation, he's actually saying that the love of God is more valuable than life because the implication is God's love will actually overcome Death itself. Now, for David, that would be a great act of faith because he's never seen anybody getting resurrected. But for us, we've seen and heard through the Bible of Jesus' death and resurrection. So we can say that God's love is greater than life, is better than life. Because we know that the love of Jesus Christ, the love of God, is able to actually transcend the problem of death itself. So that's why we know that love, God's love, is better than life. So Jesus says various times, right? The next slide. The man who loves his life, or the woman or so on, will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 15 it says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. <clears throat> And Romans 8 is the most powerful of them all. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So here we see, in Romans chapter 8 particularly, 
the expansion or the fulfillment of Psalm 63. Because David is saying that God's love is better than life. And it is. It is not some emotional sentiment where, where you know, where I say to my loved one, right? I say to Cheryl, my wife, oh, your love is better than my life itself. Oh, you know. And then Cheryl, my wife gets, you know, all teary because I said that, right? No, he's, this is not sentimentality, right? David is not talking about sentimentality. He's talking about objectivity. That God's love is better than life. What faith David must have. But we who have seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ know for a fact that the love of God is better than life. Because the love of God actually transcends death itself. Suffering, hardship, spiritual powers, all of these things are transcended by the power of God's love for us in Jesus now, is that true for you? Can you share this psalm with David? Can you sing or pray through this psalm that David did? Can you say that for yourself, God's love is better than life? Because if you can say that, then you will, you will say that you will long and seek and thirst for God, even when you fail your exam. Right, so you know, even if Nick fails his theological exam, he can say, "Yes, God's love is more important than my exam." Right. Or if you get sick, or if you have a failure in some way, you lose all your money. Well, it doesn't matter because God's love is greater than that. Now, in verse five, David changes his metaphor. So. In verse 1 to 4, uh, as you can see in the outline, the metaphor is one of thirst. Right? You know, no, I'm really thirsting for God, really longing for God. But here in verse 5, uh, it says, I, in the new transla- NIV translation, but my soul, in the old NIV translation, will be satisfied as with the riches of food, with the with singing lips my mouth will praise you, on my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. Now, again, in the desert, water is a problem. But in the desert as well, food is a problem. Uh, If you remember, when the Israelites left Egypt to go to the promised land, the thing that tripped them up, so to speak, the thing that God really got angry with them about and and made them lose one generation of people, in the desert was they wanted better food. Right? They didn't like the rations that God gave them, even though it was manna from heaven. Here David says that praising God is giving him satisfaction like the riches of food. And he feeds on God throughout the whole day, on his bed at night. He remembers God. I think of you through the watches of the night. Now, he's not saying that, you know, he's got many watches at night. He's just saying that throughout the different centuries, duties of the night, he remembers God and that gives him satisfaction. Now, again, it's a very powerful picture, right? It's like, do you hunger and find satisfaction in God? Right, so again, think of your favorite food. You know, it could be wonton mee or 
chili crab or chakwetiao or chicken rice or steak or prata. Who knows, right? But you know, you're thinking of it and they're like, hmm, really satisfying when I eat it. Do you find satisfaction in the same way when you, when you praise God in your relationship with God? Does it fill you up and satisfy you to know God in the same way as eating your stingray? Right? Your, your blachan stingray or your sambal stingray. Because for David, that's what he's saying here, right? You know, when he prays and praises God, and he thinks about God, he feels satisfaction in himself. And why does he feel satisfaction? In verse 7, because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings, my soul clings to you, and my, your right hand upholds me. So before, remember, we were saying that God is God's love is greater than life. Right? Now, now Paul, uh, sorry, not Paul, uh, David says that he finds satisfaction in God because God is his help. Uh, he is like under the shadow of his wings and the right hand upholds him. Now we can understand the picture of God being a help. Right? He's not your mate, so to speak, or your domestic helper, but he comes and helps you in your times of need. And this image is kind of developed in the idea of a shadow of your, the wing. Now Jesus uses the same metaphor here. In Matthew chapter 23, look up here. Right? Jesus says, when he goes to the Mount Olives and he looks down at the city, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Right, so next slide. So actually it's a picture of how, you know, the, 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 the chicken or the hen looks after all her chicklets, I suppose, all the little chicks, right? And, uh, and, and, and it protects the chicklets in, in, in a very loving and caring way by putting her wings over it. But God is not like a, a very weak uh, chicken, right? Because, you know, if you just think of chicken, you think, wow, you know, God is such a weak, picture of such a weak being. But actually, God is, to me, is like a mighty eagle, right? Or even if you think about it, like, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings, those big eagles? And, and it's a picture that of strength and power and coming under the shadow of, of God's wings, right? So, you know, it's like the most powerful being in the whole universe spreads out their wings to shield and protect you. And that's the way that God protects his people. And that's what David sees. He says, God, you are my help. I come under the shadow of your wings. But not only that, it says in verse 8, your right hand upholds me. You know what does it mean to uphold? Uh, uphold is the idea of holding up someone who is like, Weak and falling down. You know, it's like, have you ever, you know, helped someone who has injured his leg or, you know, they sprained the ankle and you're holding them up? Right? So in Isaiah chapter 41, right, you can say, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. 
I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Right? So, God is like, you know, you're very weak, you're stumbling, you're falling, you can't get up, but God upholds you. And that's what David is saying, you know, he's weak, but God is holding him up. And that's why, verse 8, because God is his help, God is the sh- putting him under the shadow of his wing, God is upholding him. So what does David do? David says in verse 8a, he clings on to God. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because, you know, if you've ever been injured and you've ever had someone helping you, what do you do? You don't kind of let go of them. You hold on tighter to them because they're helping you up. So that's why David says that he finds satisfaction in God. Because God, he knows, is the one who helps him. God is the one who's protecting him. God is the one who's giving him security and holding him up. But verse 9 and 11 are quite controversial and make us a bit uncomfortable. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by, the God, by God's name will praise him while the mouth of liars will be silenced. Now, when we read this passage, we feel a bit uncomfortable because does that mean that as Christians, we're very vengeful, violent, and murderous, you know? So there's that person in my office who, you know, is making my life difficult. But, you know, God is going to bury them in the earth. They're going to their body and flesh is going to be like food for the jackals. You know, you know, maybe that guy or that girl who is in the library hiding away all the reference materials that I need for my essay. You know, God is going to punish that person and, and you know what? He's gonna he's going to be given over to the sword. Now I don't think that that's the way we're meant to read it. Because when you look at this passage, who is it? whose life is being sought? Who is it who is going to be destroyed? These are enemies of the king, King David. He is the one who has written this psalm. Now, we are not the king. Okay, We are not the king. We are, we are not King David. This is very specific to King David. King David is running from people who are trying to kill him and who are trying to kill him as king, king of God's people, people who are trying to kill God's anointed king. Now, as we look at this passage, we should therefore remember that Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king. He is the one who is to come from the line of David, who will be king forever. So when we look at Psalm 63, it is actually fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus says that on the last day, What he has already begun to do at the resurrection, he will fulfill at the end because all those who actually rebel against King Jesus will be destroyed. So many, many weeks ago, uh, remember uh, Andrew preached on Psalm chapter 2 about how kiss the son lest he be angry and he destroy you in his wrath. So in the same way, Jesus is the one who will destroy his enemies. So in Revelation chapter 19, which you can see up here, you, can, you compare Psalm 63, verse 9 and 10, to what is said in 
Revelation 19, you see there's a lot of similarity, right? The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He threads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the enemies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So here in Revelation 19, we actually see the fulfillment of Psalm 63, that yes, the Davidic king will win the final battle, and the picture is, is a picture of, of war where people are, the enemies of God are actually killed, and actually uh, all the carcasses are left there in the, in the field for the birds and the wild animals to feast on. Now when we look at this passage, it's easy to be uncomfortable and embarrassed. Because what it's basically saying that in the world we live in, there are two sides. Those on the king's side, those on God's side, and those on the opposite side. And at the end of the day, those who are not on God's side will actually face defeat when they rebel and fight against God. Now this makes us very uncomfortable because in the world that we live in, we don't like to speak in such black and white terms of where if you're an enemy of God, there will be final judgment and destruction. But here in Psalm 63, as we see in Revelation 19, this is the reality, the future reality, that those who are on God's side, those who are on God's king's side, will end up being victorious over those of the enemy. Now, who are the enemy? Well, in verse 11, it says, the mouth of liars will be silenced. Now, the mouth of liars here are not people who tell white lies, although it's not good to tell white lies, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, you can always say, yeah, yeah, the food tastes pretty good, right? But I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. This is actually talking about those who tell lies about God because they, they actually do not believe in God and they, and they speak ill of God. In John chapter 8, it says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Yet he who belongs to God hears what God says. 
The reason you do not hear is you do not believe, sorry, you do not belong to God. So what this passage is actually saying is that the mouth of liars are those who actually do not believe the truth about God because truth is objective about God. It's not opinion. I don't have an opinion about God. There is the truth about God. And if you reject the truth about God, you're actually a liar and you belong to Satan. And the last day, there will be a final outcome where you're on the losing side. And that's why it says there in verse 11, that we must rejoice in God and swear by God's name and praise God. So as we come to the very end of this psalm, the stakes are very high. The right response is to seek God, thirst for God, find satisfaction in God, praise God, glorify God, swear by His name. Because His love is better than life. Because He is your help, you are under the shadow of His wing, you are upheld by God's right hand. But also, in the last day, there will be final victory over those who belong to Satan. So in conclusion, I began by saying that the most stressful thing in life is divorce and the death of a spouse. But this is nothing compared to divorce of God and the loss of God's love. Because if you lose God, you are on the wrong side. So nowadays, it's a very popular phrase to say you are on the wrong side of history. But if you are on the wrong side of God, you are on the wrong side of eternity. So the Liverpool manager, there was a Liverpool manager. There are no Liverpool supporters here right now, are there? I don't see Richmond. But anyway, there's a very famous manager many decades ago called Bill Shankly. Shankly, right? He's like the Alex Ferguson of Manchester United. And um, he was very successful. Like this is the successful period of Liverpool, right? They won everything. And one of his most famous quotes is this quote, which says, Some people believe football is a matter of life and death. And I'm very disappointed with the attitude. I can assure you it is much more than that. So what he's saying actually is football is more than life and death. Well, I want to tell you that your relationship with God and Jesus and the love of God and Jesus is much, much, much more than a matter of life and death. As we've seen here in Psalm 63, it is about the final victory, the final destination. It is about whether you are under the shadow of God's wings or whether you are His enemies. So as we come to Psalm 63, long for God, thirst for God, find satisfaction of God, swear by His name, be on the side of God's King, Jesus. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.